Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Markets remain jittery as the Federal Reserve, hence further interest rate hikes are needed to curb persistent inflation as supply chain problems continue to hamper deliveries. The Biden administration is preparing a defense budget request that is expected to be about $850 billion, about $30 billion higher than last year as the U.S. Air Force buys Boeing's E-7 as the replacement to the service's aging E-3 Sentry airborne warning and control aircraft. The key is the kind of contract, not necessarily the airplanes uh, being bought. Britain and the EU have struck a deal to resolve a dispute over the Irish Protocol as China sets a 5% growth target to overcome its economic challenges. Britain also is working hard to bring Saudi Arabia aboard as the latest member of its Team Tempest program to develop a fifth-generation aircraft that already includes Italy, Japan, and Sweden. France, Germany, and Spain are working to woo UAE to join uh, their SCAF next-generation combat aircraft program. The question is whether Washington's new conventional arms transfer policy will somehow get in the way. All this as Russia continues its war on Ukraine and Kiev asks the European Union for 250,000 artillery shells a month as Washington imposes further sanctions on Russia, including aluminum tariffs. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you so much. Great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And, and thanks uh, to all of you for always making time uh, for us, especially uh, on a weekend. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium uh, next week in Denver uh, is sponsored by GE Aerospace and Helicon Chemical. Guys, uh, welcome back. Uh, and it's it's great to have you back on. Uh, certainly uh, an interesting week, as every uh, week is interesting in its own ways. Ron, start us off on how the group uh, performed. What were the drivers against uh, a broader market where inflation remains uh, persistent, uh, supply chains remain problematic, uh, and the Fed indicates that further uh, uh, short-term rate hikes are more likely than not? Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, you know, the, the S&P was up uh, almost you know, 2% this week. Um, although uh, the indicator that a lot of uh, market watchers look at is, you know, the difference between the two-year and the ten-year yield, uh, and that's steepening, um, which is generally an indicator of uh, uh, an economic slowdown. So it seems like the market's kind of thoroughly confused. You know, bond markets are are probably at this point more cautious than than equity markets. Um, when you look at the you know the ten-year yield, the ten-year yield has been you know steadily climbing back to that four percent level just a smidge below it, but that's the direction we've been going. Um, but a 2% move on the week on the S&P, um, you know, is, is pretty much an indicator that, um, you know, it's pretty good, pretty good week. Uh, when you look across, our, you know, the universe of uh, aerospace and defense stocks in, in, in North America, North and South America, actually, um, aerospace, commercial aerospace, recognized names did far better this week than the defense ones. 
Um, you know, defense names, you know, Lockheed was essentially flat, down about you know 50 basis points. Northrop uh, down 75 basis points. Raytheon down about 50 basis points. Uh, and uh, you know, Boeing was a strong, had a strong week. It was up eight and a half percent. Uh, and then you know, Embraer was up uh, almost 12 percent on the week. Uh, and that, that's kind of how you saw things trade. Um, just to uh, and I'm back into to commercial aerospace. Uh, so we'll we'll see you know where it all falls out. You know, we track um, uh, oil prices, as you know, and they've been pretty steady. You know, WTI has been holding around 80 now right. for, for a while. Uh, Brent crude in, in the mid 80s, 86 to be exact. Um, you know, the VIX index pulled back a bit this week, um, uh, just below 20. Um, so, you know, for all the talk about inflation and market fear and so on and so forth, the market, at least the equity market, has been pretty, pretty robust. And, and we're going to talk uh, a little bit uh, about the broader budget in a moment, but let me just ask one quick follow-up, right? Uh, the U.S. defense budget is expected to be around $850 billion. A friend of mine uh, has uh, indicated that it's going to be pretty good for combat aircraft programs. One thinks that that means it's going to be good for uh, the F-35 uh, in terms of rate. Is that already priced into Lockheed, or is that a potentially a positive surprise for, for markets after if March it, 9th? If it, if it ends up being anything above 156, I mean, everybody's kind of readjusted their right. uh, Lockheed production expectations to you know, some plateau at 156 for a very long time. If it pushes it above that, um, you know, that would probably probably be viewed as a, as a positive uh, development. Sash, uh, let me take you uh, obviously to Europe. We have the Windsor Accords, which uh, I think I think you're going to maintain did not necessarily uh, do all that much, or might have done it for the broader market as opposed to the defense and aerospace group. Kind of walk us through what the big drivers, uh, broader market drivers were, uh, and how the group performed uh, in in relation. Yeah. Okay. I mean, actually, look. I'll, I'll, I mean, absolutely fair about the Windsor Accords. I mean, you know, there's nothing about aerospace and defense in the Windsor Accords. But what was really, really positive about that is. I suppose just the, the surprise on almost every single uh, from almost every single corner that when you put more or less reasonable politicians uh, in a room and they talk on a basis of that they pretty much trust each other and that they can do a deal. Who knew they, they come out and they do they do a good deal. And the real surprise about the Wins Records has been that the UK and the EU talk like adults. They realise that, you know, both sides have got to give a bit and um uh, you know, it just works very, very smoothly at the end. And there seems to be remarkably little opposition, certainly no fundamental or no, you know, uh, opposition that's, that's going to derail these. Um, and so given that the previous six years of uh, Anglo-European uh, uh, negotiations have been pretty unpleasant and by and large um, characterised by the UK behaving, you know, depressingly badly this was you know this was a very very positive week you know you just thought you know good result for good result for all sides and it just makes it so much easier for the uk and europe to work together on things that other things that really matter which includes ukraine uh, and so forth so you know think, fingers crossed on that so how did the i mean did it have an effect on the sector no not at all um uh, you know, I mean, looking at the sector this week, it was a, it was a civil week. Uh, civil stocks that we cover in Europe were up about 3.2% on average. Uh, the defence stocks were up about 0.7, averaged overall there for about 1.4. You, you know, I, I'd remind our listeners, we've had an incredibly strong three, four weeks of uh, defence stock price performance. Uh, you know, we've, we've had the likes of um, Saab up 
in total, uh, well over a third uh, over that period. I and mean, that's been remarkable. Hensolt has, in fact, Hensolt was up, but that was the standout performer last week. That was up 7.5% last week. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of the other defence stocks sort of uh, pulled the average back or so forth. But, the, you know, civil stocks, it's been a, it's been a risk on week. Um, and probably the strongest performer, Rolls-Royce, um, they had a, uh, a series of management meetings. Um, the new chief executive, Tufan Egan-Bilic, has been talking to both buy and sell side uh, investors and comes across as being pretty sensible. Uh, why? Because um, he recognises that he is responsible to a, a range of stakeholders, not just uh, you know, a particular subset of investors. He recognises that there are core businesses and then there are businesses where he has a degree of agency. Uh, and the core businesses tend to be in, uh, involving either nuclear uh, reactors for submarines or aero engines. And he really can't touch those, but he can touch, you know, he can he can make strategic decisions about everything else. And I think but I think the fact that he didn't come out as being um, crazy and thinking that he could stir everything up uh, was quite a reassurance after what was, you know, as we talked last week, a very good set of results for the uh, for the second half of uh, 2022. So I mean, overall. You know, Sybil was definitely better last week, but I mean, that was dragged up by Rolls-Royce. Defence had a bit of a sort of week of marking time. As as you said, uh, Sash, I mean, it's always very positive to see folks uh, acting adult. But one uh, follow-up question, right? I mean, the, the new uh, leadership at Rolls-Royce, though, is being criticised for actually driving some talent uh, potentially away, right? Tom Bell, highly experienced executive uh, who's done, I think, um, just about everybody would say a terrific job uh, at roles uh, managing to win, for example, the B-52 re-engine uh, contract, which was something that was very important. And he's going to Lidos to replace uh, Roger Crone, who's had a very successful tenure uh, at the company. I mean, is there is there a concern that the new leadership that the company is seeing, you know, may have gained a very good chief executive, but is actually losing talent uh, at some of these divisions without which they won't be able to execute? Uh, look, Tom Bell, I think, is a, is a, it, it's a classic case of somebody who had risen as far as he could do in Rolls-Royce. Um, and, you know, if you're given the choice between running a division of a company or going up and running a quoted company, that's a no-brainer. You just make that move pretty much every single hour of the day. Um, so I, I don't see that as being Tufanberg, uh, Eggenberg's driving out talent. What I see that as being is Tom Bell was offered, you know, a really good job he would have been crazy not to take it um yeah you know gonna be big shoes to fill um and the b52 re-engineering is that was a fantastic contract to win and you know that on his cv will you know that that will stay with him for for a very very long time and you know huge kudos for that there are other executives at roles who are leaving for various reasons um i'm not overly worried about that i don't think roles uh, I, I think Rolls has always had a problem, and it's a problem that a lot of companies have, um, of you know what are referred to in the UK as baronies, i.e. where individual divisions become incredibly powerful, quite insular, don't necessarily work with other divisions and don't cooperate terribly well with head office. Um, a BA system, British Aerospace of old, was composed of a series of baronies, and sometimes head office had no idea what was going on. Uh, I think Egan Billich is quite sensibly trying to, to break this structure down a bit and get to a stage where you know head office actually makes the, the big calls and the divisions execute them rather than uh, vice versa. Uh, so I, I'm less worried about sort of you know uh, departure of uh, you know wide departure of talent. I think um, you know if, if, if talent is there it will be quite deep on the bench uh, but I do think that 
trying to get get rid of these sort of baronial features uh, of the company would be a very positive thing. <laughs> baronial features. Uh, that's uh, that's very funny. Um, Richard, um, you know, bold projections uh, on uh, China growth, and I want to get everybody's uh, sense on that and what it means uh, for uh, commercial business, right? I mean, anytime China says it's going to grow, it has a po- it tends to have a positive impact uh, on on places, including on travel, especially in the wake of uh, lifting of the COVID restrictions there. But more importantly, I want to ask about um, the uh, Biden administration's new tariffs on Russian aluminum. Uh, very steep. I think it's a 200% tariff uh, designed to further punish Russia for its illegal uh, and brutal war on Ukraine that continues. And we'll talk about that more in a a moment. You know, there's a concern that we're announcing sanctions, but actually not particularly enforcing. I mean, you know, Russian lumber is still on store shelves. I think the trade between the two countries is sort of half what it was uh, uh, before. The aluminum, uh, you know, there were titanium uh, sanctions put in place, but I, it looks like those are being violated, right? I mean, what what does this measure on aluminum ultimately mean, or as Sash would say, aluminium, uh, mean uh, ultimately? And if we're not really enforcing them, what signal does that send, whether on titanium or anything else? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, first of all, from an alumin- aluminium standpoint, nod there to, to Sash, um, I don't think this means terribly much just because Russia doesn't control that much of the market. It's not going to be a huge needle mover on the price. You know, strangely, Jamaica is one of the big players, and there are plenty of others. Titanium, that's another story. Titanium sponge, Russia has a big presence. Uh, titanium mill product, that's the, you know, gorilla in the room, because that's where Russia has an overwhelming presence, and a big chunk of other stuff comes from other dangerous neighborhoods. Uh, so it's, it's just... It, Yes, enforcement has been an issue. That's because of the complex nature of supply chain. You, you might you might see Boeing not buying any, but what does that mean? You know, if if sub tier companies within the engine supply chain buy it, it goes in that way. It's really tough to enforce. Um, it it you know, and 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 frankly, you can make an argument. You know, that maybe it 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 it, it shouldn't be because you know it's not like that's a huge revenue earner relative to the disruption it would create in Western aerospace supply chains. So in other words, it might be the show of, you know, sanctioning, but not actually the execution. Uh, I think what's far more concerning is the leaky sanctions in the other direction, uh, particularly semiconductors and everything else. And that's where I think we should be concerned. You know, if you'd asked anybody in the aviation business that Russia or, or told anybody in the aviation business that Russian flight activity would be pretty close to what it had been a year ago, they wouldn't have believed you. After all, the sanctions were going to totally destroy their fleet. They'd be reduced to cannibalism. You know, there'd be nothing flying in a year. Well, no. And that's because there are an awful lot of countries, uh, we all know who they are, who've not only been smuggling or, or selling um, things with semiconductors and parts and whatever else to Russia indirectly, but have been servicing Russian planes and whatever else. That is the area I think we need to crack down. We need to identify uh, you know, what is going to Russia and how Russian planes are being serviced and any other aspect of the Russian economy that's dependent upon imports from the West that are coming through Turkey or India or the UAE or what have you. And I would hope that's right. where people are getting smart about trade flows and saying, hey, look at that. There's been a, you know, a 40% increase in Cuisinart sales to Kazakhstan. That's clearly a you know, chip extraction operation. Let's crack down. 
that's where I think we could really be putting uh, our effort because that's where we could really do some damage to Russia's aerospace industry, aviation industry, and economy in general. You know, commodities, raw materials, that's, that's a global market, right? I mean, yeah, you might be able to move the price needle a bit, but it's not like you're going to be able to cut off a meaningful amount of revenue. They're just going to sell it to somebody else. And there's, you, know, you might be able to stop, say, Turkey from selling um, you know, 737 brake pads to Russia, but there's no way you're going to stop them from uh, you know purchasing raw materials from Russia through one way or another. It's just not realistic. So given the, the global nature of that, uh, that materials market, that the fungibility involved, it, it, it's not really worth the time relative to enforcing sanctions in the other direction. I'm going to have everybody else chime in uh, on uh, these uh, points, but I also want to ask you about China and what this means uh, growth-wise uh, for uh, commercial traffic and wide-body traffic uh, in particular. Yeah, you know, I mean, first and foremost, of course, China's never really been much of a wide-body market. You know, maybe 15% of the market is, is wide-bodies. That's because, of course, they've never really created uh, what you might call world-beating brands of uh, airlines. Uh, when, when it comes to uh, international uh, operations. Um, obviously, it all comes down to the MAX and the 320neo. Progress there, uh, this week, we're up to five MAX operators. So it's been sort of one of those slow rolled returns to uh, MAX, re, you know, return to service in China. That's certainly welcome. Market numbers are coming back. That's all very welcome. Um, you know, but again, keep coming back to the issue of what does future China growth look like? And my favorite anecdote that, that in 2018, it was growing at 12% plus 2019, end of 2019, it was 5.3. Whatever anti-market measures had been implemented to China were clearly clobbering civil aviation demand. So we don't know what it looks like when they return to peak, whenever that is, but probably I'm thinking next year they get back to peak and then we'll see what growth looks like. And meanwhile, India, of course, you know, you've got this big announcement of an indigo order to respond or a likely indigo order to respond to um, the, you know, big Air India announcement the other week. Uh, clearly everyone is banking on strong growth and they're saying it's pegged at 7%, which might be before you know, obviously above the, the 5.3 we've been seeing in China. We'll see, there've been all kinds of restraint on growth, uh, but the numbers we're seeing in India so far um, dwarf Chinese uh, order activity. Um, we'll see, of course, when all these orders get executed upon. Historically, India tends to overorder a bit, whereas China tends to underorder a bit. And we'll see how that looks moving forward. Ron and Sash, your guys' sense on uh, both uh, the sanctions issues and, and just on uh, China uh, before we move on to the defense portion of the discussion. Yeah, I mean, I'm just jumping quickly. I mean, on, on, on China, um, you know, the, the recovery of air traffic in China is, you know, is a key thing for for the OEMs. But honestly, it's, it's a gigantic factor for the aftermarket, right? Um, that fleet going back into service, those airplanes going back into service, and they're all going to require uh, maintenance, repair, overhaul, and spare parts. So, you know, one of the the big catalysts this year for the aftermarket suppliers is is you know Chinese aircraft getting back in the air and so on and so forth. So, uh, that's that's what we're uh, watching pretty closely. Flash? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think look, I, 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 it's very depressing. I, I agree with Richard. I think sanctions are sanctions never work as well as we hope they will. At least I can't remember last time sanctions worked really well. Um, and they take a hell of a lot longer to come through. 
I still find it very hard to see the Russian civil aviation fleet uh, working at the level that it is at the moment, uh, this time in a year, because they will have, have you know, worn out engines, airplanes, uh, uh, you know, life-limited parts, and it'll be harder and harder to get those. So at some stage, it becomes um, you know, a, a self-eating machine. Um, and it'll be very, very, you know, stuff will leak into, into Russia, but uh, at a much slower rate than it's being consumed as far as the civil aviation is concerned. Aluminium, and thank you all for your, um, uh, your consideration on that. Uh, aluminium, you know, apart from forgings, and the, you know, the Russians are just really good at forging everything because they have, they kept bigger forging machines going for longer than everybody else. Uh, they're fantastic at titanium, but they're really good at aluminium. Um, uh, they, you know, that actually will be sorely missed. Uh, and that's probably one of the things that slows the rate of um, production uh, ramps at both Boeing and Airbus over the next three to four years is you know, uh, re-establishing that sort of capacity. Um, just one point on China, you know, the, the play on Chinese aviation um, uh, coming through is probably Rolls-Royce because Rolls-Royce was is super exposed to white bodies. You know, pretty much, let's say 85% of all A330s in China and a chunk of the 777s as well are Rolls-Royce powered. Um, they were the aircraft that were grounded first and the longest by COVID because uh, there was just no requirement for that uh, regional uh, and long haul transport. Those coming back in the air, you know, that's that's the best news Rolls Royce could have for 2023. And that's, you know, they probably started to see a bit of that. Uh, in the final months of last year, which is why uh, last year's numbers were so good. A quick reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Sash, uh, you had something more you wanted to add? Yeah, just one other, other point. You know, Chinese are forecasting what five point two percent growth for um, uh, for this year. Uh, the Chinese defence budget is now rising at seven point two percent, so faster than GDP. Um, and if that doesn't send a signal as to what Chinese uh, priorities are, I don't know what does. Uh, very, uh, very well said. Speaking, uh, very well said. And speaking of uh, budgets, I think this is a great opportunity to look at the U.S. budget uh, as as well as the British budget and what expectations are. Uh, Richard, uh, start us off right. I mean, we're looking at eight hundred, about eight hundred fifty billion, right? Thirty billion dollar uh, higher request. There's this sense that Congress uh, may add but a few tens of billions of dollars of their own if they don't manage to default uh, the United States by uh, being unable to raise the the nation's borrowing limit. What are what what are the expectations uh, from this budget? Right, I mean, it's it's said that uh, combat aircraft programs likely did well. We heard from Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're doubtless going to hear some more from uh, Air Force leadership uh, in Denver at uh, the Aerospace Warfare Symposium. What are what are some expectations? What do we know? What should we be expecting? Uh, given that between uh, this show and the next one. Um, we will have a bouncing baby budget. Yeah, uh, you know, there's no question that uh, there seems to be broad bipartisan support for getting towards, uh, you know, a higher level. And uh, as Ron says, for all we know, it could be a trillion dollar budget. A bit. Um, obviously, combat aircraft are going to do great. Be very interesting to see if there's yet another batch of Super Hornets added at, at in the wake of, you know, uh, Boeing's announcement about the end of Super Hornet production. Certainly, the Navy won't request any. 
we'll see when we get through Congress. I, last year they added eight, you know, that, that's going to be of interest. I expect a full approval of the F-15 budget, so a couple dozen there, maybe more. Um, obviously, you know, a very big question about F-35 going from the 31A models to back to the, the 48 to 54, that's more customary. That's going to be really interesting. One very big question, um, ATP, you know, variable generation, variable a geometry engine for uh, retrofit and for new build on F-35. Will that be funded? Um, that this is the, the year that will be decided. And just getting that going would be $6 billion over a few years followed by the actual procurement of the engine. So that's a very big question. Um, B-21, NGAD, will the Navy make any kind of announcements? Because of course, you know, NGAD is utterly unsuitable for the Navy. And, and you know, we've had FAXX, uh, you know, and, and their version of NGAD, whatever else, uh, not, not, not a cousin of NGAD, just simply the same concept, but a totally different plan. You know, um, there are so many things to fund, <laughs> how to put it, you know, and uh, I, for me, the big interesting sort of wild card on the R&D front is recognition that we've got an airlift problem in the long run. And, you know, this is one of those moments where you'll see in a few years headlines saying, oh, my God, we could not possibly have realized that there would be a strategic airlift short shortfall. Who knew? But OK, look, we're all saying it now. It's a real issue. So will there be the start of CX funding for a next generation strategic airlifter emerging sometime in the 2030s, but starting now? So there's so many places that you could see this cash put to good use in the aircraft craft uh, part of it uh who would have known who would have known that airlift uh would be uh would be such a big uh problem ron uh what are your expectations uh right i mean what are the kind of questions and what's the kind of uh intel you're gathering yeah i mean i think in the investment community uh, most folks are expecting uh, what you what you outlined you know um you know, about 850 billion maybe maybe a little more I think what'll be interesting with this budget, um, kind of what I've heard is this will, they're going to have a fit up for the first time in a while. Um, so we'll have a five-year view. Right. And in that fit up, um, we will go over a trillion dollars. Uh, and you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how that is received uh, on the Hill and by folks, because it's, you know, sort of in, you know, in stock parlance, it's kind of like a technical level, right? I mean, it's just, wow, it's got a T. Um, so, so we'll see how that goes. Um, on the aircraft front, I mean, I don't have a heck of a lot to you to add to what Richard and you have said. Uh, uh, however, uh, on the naval front, I think it will be interesting to see what happens there in terms of, um, you know, both you know, funding for submarines and, and other you know strategic objectives, right. particularly given what's going on in the Pacific Rim. Uh, in, in, indeed, and I, I should point out, right, we had uh, Todd Harrison of Matreya. Uh, on uh, talking uh, a little bit and, and mirroring these numbers, right? 850 and this expectation that we could get uh, to uh, about 880. Um, as we're having this debate on this side of the Atlantic, on your side of the Atlantic, Sash, uh, the SUNAC uh, administration is uh, going to unveil its budget March uh, 15. Um, certainly a time of uh, economic challenge uh, that uh, UK uh, and, and every other country around the world is working through, uh, although they might be somewhat more acute uh, from a UK context. What is the expectation, right? Uh, the government has been, the UK has been a real leader uh, in you know, marshal, helping the United States marshal the world uh, to give uh, aid uh, to Ukraine, uh, obviously, I think it's the it's the number two nation uh, when it comes to giving uh, both uh, uh, financial support and military uh, support. Walk walk us through what the expectation is 
on what the budget's going to look like, especially uh, for defense, for technology? Yeah, uh, so expectations for the budget themselves are fairly low, and they're very, very focused in the UK on domestic policy. Fundamentally, can the government keep on subsidizing people's energy bills because uh, that is the politically um, most sensitive uh, issue um, that the Treasury uh, is involved in at the moment? Defence comes on way, way down the list. Um, expectations for defence themselves are not very high. The Treasury and remember that in the UK, the Treasury really runs government. The Prime Minister is the figurehead there, but the Treasury, they're the people who are uh, who think themselves to be super smart. They're the people who have the, they have the purse strings and they fight tooth and nail to make sure that uh, departments don't waste money. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very different uh, setup to, to what you have in the, in, in the US. Um, <clears throat> so the Treasury, no love lost between the Treasury and the uh, Ministry of Defence. Uh, and the Treasury just thinks the Ministry of Defence wastes money um, on an all-too-regular basis. Um, but what there is, and what I think is very interesting, is that parallel with, the, with the, uh, the, the budget process, and the budget process is going okay because actually the UK had a very good uh, last quarter for tax receipts, and tax receipts in the, um, uh, the last quarter of last year, is, it's the single biggest quarter for tax receipts because that's when everybody who's self-employed pays their, their final taxes. Um, and uh, tax receipts were way better than expected. So the Chancellor seemed to have a bit of, a bit of spare uh, money to be able to uh, pay out, even after he subsidised everybody's fuel, fuel bills. Right. So let's look at the other things going on, which is that the integrated review, which is the, the defence and foreign policy review, is having what's quaintly referred to as a refresh. The integrated review came out in 2018, 2019, I mean, yeah, a pandemic ago, basically. Um, and this was the one that said Britain will be a, you know, a global Pacific power and all that rubbish. Um, and then the pandemic got in the way and probably more importantly, Ukraine got in the way. And it was suddenly realised that if you don't defend your backyard, there's no point in um, parading around the Pacific looking terribly important. Um, so the integrated review refresh is really, really important in terms of uh, whether MOD will get more money and what for. And what's fascinating about this is that the Ministry of Defence is not leaking very much. The services are not squealing very much, which they normally do if there are sort of swinging cuts being imposed and so forth, which tends to make you think that the integrated review is coming out with a view that, yeah, there needs to be more money. Uh, it probably needs to be focused, let's be honest, a little bit more on um, uh, defending the home base and Europe and everything else. Uh, but it's not going to involve cuts. And that is a, that's a very, very positive outcome. Uh, if that's the case. Now, that will come out probably sometime after the budget, uh, so most likely late March rather than uh, mid-March. But I think it's a, uh, you know, I've been very interested by how the mood music, and it's very, very, very low-key stuff, but has just changed quite positive, even in the last couple of weeks or so. I should point out uh, to the audience that Jeremy Hunt uh, is the second Lord of the Treasury and the Prime Minister is the first Lord of the Treasury. Uh, yeah, and which... if, you believe, if you believe those rankings, Vargo, you know, I can sell you a bridge. I'm, uh, I'm, I am just passing along what their formal titles are. <laughs> yeah. Sash, uh, which is the reason why they sit right next door to each other at number 10 yeah. and 11. Um, so um, uh, let me uh, go to uh, the question of production. Um, uh, and, and I want to get to SCAF and Tempest in a minute, so I haven't forgotten that, nor the E7, uh, which uh, I think also bears uh, discussing a little bit. Um, 
Volodymyr Zelensky has asked the European Union for 250,000 rounds a month, uh, saying that this uh, war is going to be determined by artillery. Uh, obviously, the Russians scrambling and a lot of concerns about whether or not um, China will supply those artillery shells. The United States is doing a massive surge, and by next year, we'll get to 90,000 rounds a month. 250,000 rounds for Europe is a lot. Does Europe ever get there? If so, what's it take and when does it happen? Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a gap between where Europe is and where it should be. Uh, and let's um, be clear about you know the nature of this gap. European nations until very recently just weren't buying very much. I mean, 155 millimeter artillery. This is what we're talking about. It is the it's the war-winning munition or the war-losing munition if you don't have enough of them um, in uh, in Ukraine uh, at the moment and probably for the for the foreseeable future. And the Ukrainians, you know, there's been some fascinating data coming out of, uh, out of Ukraine. The 250,000 a month is based on all of the Ukrainian 155 millimeter uh, cannons firing about 200 rounds a day, which is what they should be firing in an intense defensive battle. What I find fascinating is that the Ukrainians' metrics for how much artillery they need or how many rounds they need is identical to what the planners in NATO were working on all the way through the Cold War and beyond. And then, lo and behold, every Western country forgot these yardsticks, even though they were printed in their staff officers' handbooks, uh, because they were just a bit inconvenient. Also, artillery was, was uh, so 1970s. Um, so the Ukrainians need a lot of it. How much does Europe produce at the moment? It ain't 250,000 a month. It's probably actually about 250,000 rounds a year, but that's based on very, very low demand in the last couple of years. There is capacity for at least three times that and probably four times that. And that capacity is, if not hot, certainly warm. But of course, the long lead items are, are things like um, fuses. And um, at a certain stage, Europe runs out of chemicals. Um, effectively, Europe runs out of nitric acid and hence nitroglycerin and hence repellent. And you have to divert that from the rest of the chemical industry to, to get things going again. But then there's coal capacity and there's a ton of coal capacity. Go and talk to some of the um, uh, armaments makers in uh, Central Europe in, uh, or you know, East Central Europe in particular. And they talk about the capacity they had during the Cold War. And the capacity they had during the Cold War was 10 to 15 times what they have now. And the really savvy guys never actually closed it down. They just mothballed it. So I think Europe can get 150,000 pounds a month, but not this year. And probably not until the end of next year either. Um, but I think that it, it's a, uh, you know, the fact that this number is out there, the fact that the European Union uh, is now looking at spending a 4 billion uh, euro fund, which is supposedly there for uh, European peace and stability. Well, it's going to achieve peace and stability if it gets spent right, but it's it's sort of quite a roundabout way of doing it. Um, uh, but, you know, the EU has got this very, very large fund to spend specifically on ammunition. I'm actually really quite bullish on this. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to see the capacities, um, you know, the, the, the declared capacities go up. Um, I mean, you know, big players, NAMO, up in uh, Norway and uh, Sweden, Rheinmetall in Germany, clearly, um, uh, Nextair in France, Expal, about to be bought by Rheinmetall down in um, Spain, BA Systems, um, you know, those are the, those are, they're not dominant, but I mean, they probably comprise 50% of the capacity out there. They've certainly got the ability to expand if they get the orders and if they can get the, you know, the components and so forth. And I don't think the South Koreans will directly 
supply uh, Ukraine, but they are willing to supply European nations to build up their stocks. So presumably what it is the U- Europeans build could be able to be transferred uh, then, right? That the, the no, South the, Korean the, stocks bolster their uh, domestic stocks and then they export what it is they produce. Well, the EU has made it very clear that the EU funding is not to buy um, South Korean ammunition. No right. way, Jose. You know, it's there to build up European capacity. Now, if other, if individual European countries want to buy South Korean ammunition, that's their, that's up to them and their budget. But that's not what the EU funding is for. Uh, interesting, uh, Ron. Real quick, um, how much? And is there any estimate about how much the United States is going to be spending on bolstering right its industrial base, its production capacities? Right. I mean, there was a big focus on. Um, you know, building a new generation of munitions and 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 investing in the industrial base in order to be able to do that. Um, do we have any sense now how much is going to be going to this sort of stuff? Because you've been noting since the very beginning, right? Even though people have been saying we, we haven't moved fast enough, we we are moving. It's just that it's a very very big challenge, you know. And and we're trying to you know eat the elephant, even though we haven't surged as much as we can. But what's the expectation of how much surge there is going to be out of this budget? Yeah, I think it's unclear, honestly, right? And that's hopefully one of the things we'll get a better view on on March 9th. Um, you know, we track orders daily as they come out of the out of the DOD. And you've seen it for quote unquote the usual suspects, IMARs, strikers, you know, 155 millimeter rounds. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, there's a order in place essentially, a standing order for a billion dollars of 155 millimeter rounds. Um know how quickly that goes and so on and so forth it's it's honestly it's an open question um so we haven't heard any numbers quoted on you know what's going to be invested in the industrial base so on and so forth um you know it's 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 actually what's making the headlines is sort of the opposite it's like well can we can we do this and can we afford to share while we have our own issues and so on and so forth right i mean that's kind of been the big question in the submarine industrial base um, so, so we'll see. I mean, I wish I could say, yeah, they're going to spend, you know, hundred billion dollars in Dutch based, but, um, we don't have that kind of clarity, at least not yet. Um, Richard, uh, let me, um, get you, uh, starting on, uh, the conversation, right? I mean, we have discussed for a long time that the, you know, obviously London, uh, has wanted Saudi Arabia to be part of Tempest. There was at one point the thought that Turkey would be part of Tempest, uh, as well. That hasn't worked out, even though we have Italy and Japan, little bit of a question mark dotted line on on Sweden. Um, France has been working very hard, right? Having shored up uh, France, Germany, Spain together to bring the United Arab Emirates aboard on that program. But this is all happening as the United States issues its new conventional arms transfer policy that says human rights will be a consideration. Uh, and whether or not the nation buying American hardware does business uh, with, you know, or has a close relationship with China and Russia will be considerations. Um, and, and there were some concerns that the UAE sort of pressed ahead with uh, Chinese trainers after the United States was saying what he was saying about, we don't want you to get too close to, to China. Um, you know, certainly concerns in the wake of the president's visit to Saudi Arabia, uh, right? Saudi Arabia isn't all that popular in the White House either. Uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting that there's going to be churlish reactions uh, to things, but both of these nations have been you know, made very clear, we intend to draw closer to China, just like, um, you know, we will be home to Russian uh, capital, money, yachts, uh, and and what have you, which doesn't sit well uh, with, with folks in Washington. Does, does do, do these programs end up being hurt? Does the United States end up being hurt? 
because on the one hand, the United States has been talking about the importance of allies and partners and an arsenals of democracies model, um, while at, at, the, at the same time, right? How does this play out in your mind? It's a fascinating moment in time um, from a geopolitical level, because on the one hand, Saudi, the UAE, and several of the other Gulf states are kind of what you might call the crack cocaine of the military uh, aircraft export market. You know, you've got a lot of cash, big requirements, no indigenous capabilities whatsoever. And on top of that, icing on the cake, they don't really get clearance right away for the latest and best from the US, which means the Europeans are in on a chance with a chance. And on top of that, they tend to dual source for reasons of political hedging. So again, it's just crack cocaine, can't be avoided. Having said that, it it tends to sometimes be overrated. Uh, The long, long, long multi-decade wait and perhaps forever wait for tranche two Saudi typhoon uh, is clearly proof of that. Uh, They seem happy to coast with a smaller than expected number of combat aircraft and a heavy dependence upon the F-15. Eventually, that's going to change in Saudi, but for now, that's good. Uh, UAE, really interesting. They seem to be saying, yeah, it's U.S. and France, and right now, heavy emphasis on France with 80 Rafale orders. So from the standpoint of uh, European uh, producers, this is clearly just a tremendous potential boost for the business case for the new combat aircraft designs. Big complications, however. Yes, exactly. As you say, you know, these guys are clearly trying to play both sides of the street with regard to China and more worryingly Russia. Um, and it, I think the biggest issue right now is, is is Russia for obvious reasons. And given the fact that there is, in fact, a, a Russian combat aircraft industry, there's going to be concerns about technology leakage. And you could easily see um, these becoming, you know, Tempest becoming a purely non-American plane, which I don't think would be good at all. I actually tend to think that Tempest would be a fascinating uh, transatlantic trans-Pacific program if the U.S. was involved in a meaningful level, if they could get back, get around concerns about ITAR, uh, and of course get U.S. technology involved. And uh, and it's not like the U.S. is thinking about a post-F-35 export program. You know, obviously F-35 eventually is going to diminish and and get is clearly not, it's like exporting a nuclear aircraft carrier, not going to happen. So it's, there's a lot, there's a real balance here, but you know, boy, just that upfront cash injection is such a draw. I I would be surprised if they didn't pursue it. Um, SCAF is a different story because they've got the Germans. And again, this might be the precipitating moment that causes France and Germany to divorce on this program because the idea of going to military export markets in politically sensitive areas with the Germans saying one false move and we'll cut you off for human rights reasons, even more onerous than anything the Biden administration has planned, that's clearly an albatross. Uh, so that, that's going to be really interesting. Um, overall, I'll expect them to pursue it. If they get it, they might regret it in the long run. But again, there's that upfront hit of cash that's just irresistible. Well, as a British friend of mine put it, right, I mean, we, we need to make a go of this program and without those numbers is very problematic, right? I mean, the US interest is, you know, when you have a trillion dollar domestic budget, uh, European nations that are buying from you and uh, the Indo-Pacific buying from you, you're less interested in those hundred orders that might come from Saudi Arabia at the end of the day, right? You're more interested in pursuing the lower hanging fruit that is, you know, as you said, is not gonna be a decade long uh, approval process associated with it, especially if you're irritated 
uh, with uh, those governments for whatever reason. And I mean, just to put a positive word in for the UAE, they did help, for example, play a central role in the negotiation, you know, in, in freeing Brittany Griner, for example, right? I mean, so so it is a, a government that is, you know, eager at, at, at uh, sort of rebuilding and mending fences uh, with, uh, with, with Washington. Sash, your, your sense on how all of this plays out? To an extent, the US supported it upon itself by not having an exportable fighter aircraft. You've got the F-35, the clues in the name, strike. You know, it's the joint strike fighter. Um, you haven't got a, a replacement for the F-15. So you shouldn't be surprised when two nations that are long of F-15s and can't see a route to an F-15 replacement, first Japan and now Saudi Arabia, come and join a program that is designed to produce a, a you know an air superiority aircraft rather than a strike aircraft. Um, I can understand why you're unhappy about Saudi Arabia, um, but Saudi Arabia, I mean, every time the US has bad relations with Saudi Arabia, they go and buy somebody else's equipment, and they have done for 50 years. Um, so, it, you know, there, there's a sort of foreign policy issue here that um, I'll, I'll leave you to, 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 to work on. I think it's quite important, though, to, to think, who do you want the Saudis to buy from? Given they're not going to buy from the US because you don't have an F-15 replacement for them, do you want them to buy from the UK or do you want them to buy from France or from China or from Russia? Probably in that order. Um, which is the least worse option in that? Is probably the UK. If you don't think it is, um, we'll have to agree to, to differ. But we've, we've had relations with Saudi Arabia for a very, very long time. And you know, are they going to get full visibility a are they going to get full visibility of everything that's going on in tempest and b if they do is there much they can do with it frankly i doubt it i don't think this is the same level of relationship if when how it comes through that the japanese well actually not even the japanese will get that the italians will get um you know i, th I think there's a series of tiers uh within tempest as in as i'm sure there will be within scaf uh, as to who gets what stuff i'm mean, you know, Germany does not get what, what France has in terms of flight controls on SCAF. Dassault's made that perfectly clear. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think it would be positive for the Tempest program in terms of funding and in terms of future volumes to, to, uh, to bring Saudi in. It would be positive for um, uh, SCAF if they bring the, the Emirates in. And then there'll be a really interesting competition to see who can get Qatar. What fun that'll be. Um, that uh, it, it uh, certainly uh, would be uh, interesting. And in Joint Strike Fighter, right? I mean, there's uh, a tiering uh, there uh, as well, uh, right? Uh, where uh, the UK is, you know, an equal partner, uh, for example, uh, with uh, the United States, indeed, uh, the founding partner. Um, let me, uh, uh, Ron, uh, go to you because we're almost out of time. E7, uh, right? We expected the United States Air Force to order E7s to replace the E3 uh, fleet, uh, a great airplane, uh, lower operating costs, certainly uh, newer, more uh, advanced uh, radar uh, and battle management system, all of which, uh, you, know, uh, you know, has uh, genetics that go uh, back uh, some ways. Walk us through the nature of the contract and what's different about it, because this is not a fixed price contract, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, a couple of thoughts, um, you know, uh, and by one, the way, if you want to say anything about the fighter competitions, go ahead too. And then, and then bring us home with uh, E7. Although I suspect Richard, you want to take a bite out of that apple as well. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just focus on E7 and um, I mean, I think there's a couple of interesting factors about it, right? So it's an aircraft that was originally designed for, um, Australia and the UK, um, and it's a cost plus contract. 
So be it that the platform already exists, um, is already in service, and it's cost plus, this should be execution screw-up proof. Um, so and I, I think that's a that's a big deal, right? Um, you know, this is movement back towards you know defense contracting the way it arguably should be done, um, not taking unnecessary risks when you don't have to, uh, particularly in, on development programs. Um, so, so here you are. I mean, your 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 margin most likely, right? Because it's cost plus, it's capped, but your your risk is um, should be um, really infinitesimal unless you really execute poorly, um, which seems like a real head scratcher. Be it that the platform largely already exists. And I should point out, right, I mean, also in service in Turkey, right, in the Wedgetail original configuration that was born, right? I mean, so that's one of the reasons why the United States Air Force is looking at this as this is a pretty proven, uh, right, uh, design uh, at this point. But and, you, and, you, and, and I would add, you know, and I'd add, I mean, this is probably the way you should do um, acquisition. Um, instead of trying to invent something new all over again, you have a, a proven platform that's been in service and so on and so forth, so. Um, yeah, so ho- hopefully this is a good one. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's a good one, Richard. Uh, last point before we part for the week. Oh yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I think it's kind of interesting that year after year, the Air Force and up to a lesser extent other services have been going to Boeing Defense and saying, "Oh, you're buying defense contracts with fixed price and uh, money losing uh, bids. Wonderful, give till it hurts." And uh, now, as Ron says. This is cost plus. Uh, I think they might have realized they've gone to the well once too often, or perhaps from another standpoint, that Boeing's just been way too eager to sacrifice margins and indeed any kind of profit uh, to get defense market share. And, but on the other hand, you know, this also speaks to the, the, the likelihood that Boeing's not going to get any kind of next generation combat aircraft programs anytime soon. So this is the one thing that could go some way towards restoring the health of BDS. So basically they become the transport tanker, uh, special mission aircraft provider, and then uh, Northrop and Lockheed split whatever is on the combat aircraft side. Yeah, exactly. Which will be devastating for, right? I mean, there were those who would, or, or, or to see whether or not somebody else can grow as a competitor in that space, right? Uh, yeah, right. And, you know, this, of course, has everything to do with you know, deprioritization of engineering and, and technical acting, just what we've been speaking about for years at, at Boeing. But at least they have the franchises you just mentioned, and that'll keep them around as competitors. And to be fair, you know, when they um, entered the, the Joint Strike Fighter competition back in the 90s, JAST, of course, it had been many decades since they designed any kind of combat aircraft. Go back to the propeller days. And they were still able to leverage their ability to design and integrate aircraft to create, you know, the runner-up. <laughs> Not a great one, but nevertheless a runner-up in the JSF program. Yeah, I think the yeah. previous the previous aircraft was the pea shooter. That's that right. right. <laughs> it, it was it was the the it was uh, well yeah it was the pea shooter because I was going to say the F four B four which oh, was the Joint Strike Fighter of its day, but um, pea shooter I think came after right that was the monoplane. Uh, so yeah, much more advanced, uh, than the F4B4, which was a, a lovely biplane. Anyway, go see one at the, uh, Air and Space Museum. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, hope you guys have a great week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Vago. Wouldn't be a weekend without you. Yeah. Always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks again. Yeah. Really appreciate it, Vago. Thanks for having us on.